from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. In 1972, a comic was published, an underground comic, called Goldie, A Neurotic Woman. It was by Aline Kaminsky, age 24. And it was one of the first explicitly autobiographical comics, and the very first by a woman, at a time when memoir was barely a genre. No, it wasn't considered an art form to talk about yourself. It was like for tabloids or something. And ever since, she has published more funny, intimate comics that continue to draw directly from her life. I'm not capable of making things up. Oh, really? <laughs> no, that's why I, draw, I write and draw about what I know. But my stories always have a different point of view. I'm always trying to say something different, but I'm using that as my vehicle. You know, just as Frida Kahlo only painted herself, and right. that was one of my major influences. And her monkey. Yeah, and her monkey. Well, okay, I have certain little fetishistic yeah. things, too. Oh. But I tell my story through that character, but it's always a different story. Those stories can be found in her book, Love That Bunch, an anthology that has just been expanded and reissued. You can see Aline's DNA in the work of a lot of artist-authors, including Alison Bechtel, Marjan Satrapi, Roz Chast, and in particular, the title character of the graphic novel and movie, Diary of a Teenage Girl. Reading an Aline Kaminsky comic changes the girl's life in the late 1970s, and she fantasizes about Aline and her husband, the underground comic superstar Robert Crumb. I've decided Aline Kaminsky is my favorite cartoonist. She must be beautiful and work all the time at a little drawing table with R. Crumb nearby at his drawing table. And they discuss their drawings and their pens. I imagine they're happy. But Aline Kaminsky Crumb wasn't so happy when she was a teenage girl in the early 1960s. You know, I was like uh, a girl from the suburbs that was doing everything to get away from the way I was raised. From the New York suburbs. Long Island suburbs. Five towns. Jewish family, the five towns. Jewish family, upwards driving, materialistic, everything. And all I wanted to do was get as far away from that as possible, as all the other kids that I knew, too. She enrolled in a top-flight art college in New York City to study painting. But even there, she still felt like an outsider. Well, that was a period of abstract expressionism, if you remember, yes. which didn't talk to me at all. You yeah. know, I was always really drawing. M- Pollock and de Kooning were not your thing? No, not at all. And yeah. I was really like searching and floundering in art school. Anything that was detailed was kind of looked on its sort of, you know, retro and not very relevant. Yeah. So Norman Rockwell. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't I could exactly, very corny and yeah. kind of kitsch. Yeah. So I couldn't really really find my voice in that world and right at that same time underground comics started coming out. I thought, "Oh my god, this is an art form that's happening now and speaking uh, the voice of our generation now and I was totally attracted to it. The underground comic scene was just emerging out of the 60s counterculture. Outrageous and raunchy cartoon stories by artists like Spain Rodriguez, Bill Griffith, S. Clay Wilson, and R. Crumb, who at that point, Aileen was yet to meet. It turned out to be a medium that fit Aileen's sensibility perfectly. I had always been like writing humorous things and drawing 
critical, nasty drawings of other people. And I had notebooks and notebooks filled yeah. with stuff. So, and I also was raised on stand-up comics because my grandfather was a huge fan of stand-up comics in New York. And he took me to see Joey Bishop, Jackie Mason, Alan King... Henny Youngman, the great. So no goyish. Uh, God forbid. Little Jewish man gets hit by a car. They're waiting for the ambulance. The cop takes his jacket off, covers him. He says, you're comfortable? Say, I make a nice living. <laughs> and underground comics, when I saw them, the light bulb went off right. over my head. Do you, do you remember, like, the first time, there you are, Cooper Union in the East Village, and, and, and going into a shop and seeing your first underground comic? I do. I remember seeing... Uh, it was an early Zap comic, I think it was, that I saw. And I, Zap I, comic. Yeah, and I could not believe the outrageousness of the drawing, the violence, the sex, the craziness, the anarchy of it all, and the free expression. That it, it, you know, I thought, oh, my God, this is amazing. We just drew whatever we wanted in the process. Of course, we had to break every taboo first and get that over with, you know, drawing racist images, any sexual perversion that came to your mind, making... F- fun of authority figures, all that. We had to get that past all that and really get down to business. That's from the 1988 documentary Comic Book Confidential. It is Robert Crumb, R. Crumb, whom you met and then married uh, after you moved out to San Francisco after college. Yeah. Um, the Bay Area was kind of the epicenter of the underground comics Yeah, that's movement. why I moved there. And, and, and it, this was its great moment, like 71, 72, Absolutely. right? Comics were really going strong because of the success of Zap Comics. Every small publisher, all these small publishers started springing up, and all, they wanted as many comics as they could get. And if you went there and you could even draw a facsimile of a comic, you could get it published. And I happened to show up when the first women's comic was being put together, and they desperately needed pages. It was literally conceived as, oh, this is a comic by women. Yeah, yeah, this women's art collective uh-huh. got together and uh-huh. decided to do a women's comic because there, there were no women in the history of comics, and they felt that the Zap comics and the male comics were very misogynistic, right. and this was a, a very strong group of militant feminists, and they wanted to do another right version of comics. And were you not sufficiently militantly feminist? Not at all. No, I wasn't. I was very feminist in the sense that I wanted to create my own reality, but I wanted to be bad, and I wanted to have sex with men, and that wasn't good. I liked men too much, and I dressed in a provocative way, and I drank and took drugs. I was a bad girl. I liked bikers and bad boys, and I just wanted to... I wanted to not be on Long Island in the right. five towns, you know? Oh, so you found this as a different <laughs> this was thing a, you could rebel against? This was, well, not that I would rebel against it. It's just that it didn't suit my desires at right. the time. I, I was perfectly happy to work with those people and accept that point of view as well. Right. But they, I found them somewhat humor-impaired, and that was a problem for me. That was a problem for them. My work was a problem for them because they thought it was too self-deprecating and because I wasn't idealizing women enough, and because I I portrayed myself as, like, almost a sexual predator, you know, stalking men and really wanting to be with men, which was so politically incorrect. Kind of, and, and in its way, uh, ahead of its time, as a form of feminist expression. Yes, expression, yeah. exactly. I agree with you. Uh, but at the time, that's how it was, yeah. and, and I was, you know, kind of pushed out of that group in a way, but there were a couple other women that were more like me, so we we branched off eventually and started Twisted Sisters, which were, was the bad girl comic. 1976. Yeah, that was the bad girl comic. And this is the cover of the first issue, yep. Twisted Sisters. Describe this. 
okay, it's me sitting on the toilet looking at myself with Mr. Bunch, my male alter ego character, is talking to me in the mirror. And you're almost naked. I'm almost naked. My pants are down around my ankles, underpants are down around my neckles, and I have a T-shirt on. And I have. when I did this cover, people were outraged by it. They said, how could a woman draw herself on the toilet? But what about Lena Dunham? When I saw her on the toilet in Girls, I said, oh, my God, this is courage. Oh, Jessa, it's back. It's definitely back. My urine feels so daggery. It's back. Because ah. you draw yourself okay and you're removed from it and you, people don't have to see the people looking at it. It's not nearly as brave as what she did. I fell off the chair when I saw that. That version of you in that picture and, and, and many of the versions of you over the years are, are, are a very zaftig version of you. Women in comics, certainly in mainstream mass market comics, were and are, you know, beautiful uh, dream girl fantasies because boys and men read comics m- mostly. Was that a, g- a gesture on your part? I'm going to make this person, you know, not pretty. I, I would say more than a gesture. I would say it was a very strong urge. I mean, it was like I considered myself, you know, a German, like a German expressionist artist, showing the ugliness, showing it for all that George it Gross. is. Yes. Yeah. So that's where my fine arts background influenced me very much. I wasn't trying to do commercial work. I was really an expressive artist, and I thought that needed to be said. And the other aspect is, too, you know, yes, I feel ugly. Yes, Society makes me feel this way about myself because I'm not the standard beauty. And that needed to be expressed as well. Here is a comic uh, from your book uh, called A Portrait of the Bunch. It's uh, somebody (laughs) drawing you, Mm -hmm. among other things. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a childhood memory, right? Yeah. I I remember I was 14 and I took the Long Island Railroad to Penn Station. Then I walked down to Washington Square where I saw all these like folkniks and people and uh, and, you know, people that I thought, oh, this looks like they're really having fun. Maybe I could meet people here and be one of them. The water is turned off and the circle becomes a meeting place for guitarists, bongo and banjo players, villagers on a stroll, folk singers, and tourists. It looked like a world I could relate to compared like to Long Island. In something yeah. Right. Early 60s. Early 60s? Yeah, like 62 maybe. Okay. There were guys doing portraits like in the West Village, you know, for five bucks or something. For like tourist characters. Yeah, for tourists. And I decided to do one. And uh, I was with my best friend, Carol, and they, he did hers and it was okay. So I decided to do mine. And when I looked at it, he had done the most grotesque. <laughs> like I looked like Jimmy Durante. Right. You know, giant nose, receding chin, you know, ugly hair doing everything. It was my worst nightmare. And it was just like, you know, oh, my God, I've been fooling myself. You know, I thought I could, like, fit in, and I'm, I'm hopeless. This, this seems like a memory that wouldn't stick, but it stuck. It stuck because, well, for one thing, I grew up in a place where everybody was Jewish, and the girls that were considered pretty were Jewish girls who didn't look Jewish. For example, I went to high school with Peggy Lipton. You know who she is? Uh, from okay. Mod Squad. Home sweet pad, want to come in? I just got some new psychedelic curtains. From Mod Squad, exactly. And because she, she moved when she was and the 16 to Rashida L.A. Jones. That's right. She married Quincy Jones. And she was in Twin Peaks also. But she was in my high school till she was 17 when her father, who was an entertainment lawyer, they moved to L.A. She was Jewish? Yes. Really? And she's, she is Jewish. What do you mean she was well, Jewish? Well, okay. Yeah, her what? brother Kenny. <laughs> her brother Kenny was short and dumpy with a big tents. nose. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she looked like that. Huh. She was in my high school. She was smart and nice. I wanted to hate her, but I had to like her because she was so nice. 
And I felt God put her there to punish the rest of us who looked like me. But my Jewish looks at that time were so despicable that, you know, I was so, I, I, I hated myself so much. Ironically, when I look back at how I looked as a young woman, I think, God, I was so beautiful. Why didn't I enjoy myself more? <laughs> because you were an adolescent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your work has always been extraordinarily personal and revealing. Here is a page from one of your comics called My Very Own Dream House. You reveal here that you secretly gave birth to a baby when you were very young uh, and, and, and gave the baby up for adoption and that you had never told your mother this. And here you are publishing it in a comic. I didn't tell my parents, but my father was was suspicious, so he found me, and I had I told him about it. I never told my mother about it because I just didn't want to be here about it for the rest of my life, you know, about how I'd done something so horrible. And I also did not want to keep the child at all. Uh-huh. I was not ready to be a parent at all. It was just a stupid accident, you know. And I was so um, promiscuous that summer of love when I got pregnant that I have no idea who the father was. I mean, I had... Numerous And it partners. literally was the summer of 1967? Yes, it was. The summer of love. That was the love child. But I had a healthy baby boy who was adopted by a Jewish family and ended up, turned out to become a doctor. So I'm... Did your mother ever find out? I don't know. She would... Ne- my, in my family, we don't talk about things like that. So she would never... We would never talk about it. And even though we're very... We get along well now... I, I wouldn't bring it up because it would just hurt her now if she doesn't know. And is if she she's still alive? Yeah, she's 90 and living so, in Miami. So she's listening to the radio. She's hearing about it right now. She might know, but then she wouldn't want to talk about it, you know? I mean, <laughs> sir, that generation's different, you know? You hide, yeah. you put a lot of things under the rug. That's why I didn't tell this. And I, I, after you don't tell something that heavy and that intense— for 20 years, not how do you bring it? Yeah, exactly. how do you bring it up later? Yeah. Well, there's a 50 year old doctor out there somewhere who's my son. You know, <laughs> you've said about a lot of your work that you, you eventually realized that what you were doing is, is, and I quote you, bringing out the worst part of myself to see if people still loved me. Sure, that's always part of it. And I guess that worked, and they did, and they do. Some people don't love me. Some people found my work really repulsive, as you know, they might. People literally. you knew, or just in gen- the public in general? Both. Like, I mean, for example. I lived in rural California, Uh and um, it was during the Reagan period when they cut the budget for schools and there were no art classes, so I would... Yeah. I volunteered and taught in my daughter's elementary yeah. school. And little by little, there were less and less kids in the class when I came. So I asked, why aren't the kids coming? And they said, well, the preacher from the Foursquare Church told the parents that you're an agent of the devil. And they don't told them to take the kids out of your class and send them to the library. So I decided I couldn't teach her anymore. I also decided I'm getting my kid out of the school. I also decided, that's when I sort of decided to look around for another place to live. This is a clip from the 1994 uh, documentary, uh, Crumb, about you and your husband, Mr. Crumb. This is you guys talking about your then home in mm-hmm. California after, mm-hmm. I guess, after you were driven out of the school for being a, a satanic uh, yeah, right. influence. Devil worshiper. These rich rednecks have moved out here and built their dream homes at the top of every single hill. There used to be nothing over here, and then this, people bought this property and... Shh, they might hear you. In this house. Shh, not too loud. Right above our house. Shh. And it uh, looks right into Robert's Shh. studio. Why? I don't care if they hear me. Couldn't be any ruder than them putting their house right above oh, mine. What do I care? I guess not since oh, we're moving to France. What do you care? <laughs> so we're moving to France. You'd already made the choice. Yeah, well, 
I thought it would be interesting to take my daughter out of America for a while because, like, the teenage kids I knew were becoming valley girls, and they were saying, duh. And I thought, I don't know if I can stand that, you know. And I I thought we could learn another language together, and, you know, she would see that there are another there's another way to live. So that was part—I did have that motivation, but I didn't know we would stay there forever. I didn't know she'd marry a French guy and have kids over there. But uh, she did. And but anyway. Is it forever? I mean, you're there for the duration. I think I'm going to leave my grandkids. Well, I guess there's <laughs> that, right? Yeah. Uh, apart from the, the women who purged you from their collective, what, what was the reaction of other women in the comics world to, to, to your work? Well, like Diane Newman, who was another woman cartoonist, and I worked together. As time went on, and there was another generation of young of artists, they were very influenced by me and by Diane Newman more, I would say, than a lot of the other artists. Phoebe Glickner, who was much younger, really— She was the diary of a teenage girl? Yes, girl, woman? yes. Yeah. She wrote to me when she was 15 years old and wanted to move in with me and learn how to do comics living with me, so— And you're mentioned in the movie, based on that— I'm in the movie yeah. as an animated character. I feel so awkward and ugly and naive and lonely. I know how you feel. Maybe I should kill myself. Nah, alienation is good for your art. That's uh, from The Diary of a Teenage Girl. That was Susanna Rogers playing you, talking with the main character, played by Belle Powley. And then you saw Alison Bechdel, and then you saw Carol Tyler, and you saw Marjan Satrapi. Yeah. Those are the well-known ones, right. but there's tons of others also who started to draw about the right more honestly about themselves. Right. And I do think the work became more interesting. And you mentioned Lena Dunham and, and other uh successors, descendants of yours in one way or another, do you feel like, oh, good, it's easier for women artists to do this kind of difficult work? I'm thrilled. It's like the most that I could ask for. It's the most satisfying thing that's happened in my career is to see the work that I think has evolved as a result of what we did in those days. Yeah, Yeah, I can't think of anything better. The irony is that I did work in the 60s to be read on the toilet and passed on to the next customer on the toilet and anti-establishment completely. And now if you go to Harvard, you read my work. Aileen Kaminsky Crumb's new improved collection of comics, Love That Bunch, is out now. Coming up, some more groundbreaking in the 1960s. It was a record that transcended race. It was a record that transcended genre. How a Wilson Pickett song changed everything. And it's a record that you could take into a college classroom and say, this is a textbook case of songwriting, performance, and production. That is next in Studio 360. Wilson Pickett got his start singing gospel in Detroit in the 1950s. He is one of the singers here in a gospel group called The Violin Airs. But like a lot of gospel singers in the 1950s and early 60s, Pickett decided to strike out for another kind of glory, the fame and fortune of pop music. And he also came out as a sinner. He was nicknamed Wicked Picket for his brushes with the law and his behavior with women. 
Pickett's commercial breakthrough came with a song he released in 1965 at age 24. And our story of that song begins with somebody who worked with him, Dan Aykroyd. You know, Wilson Pickett was just briefly in the Blues Brothers 2000. I was Al Wood, and he was Wilson Pickett. Just what is it that you do exactly? I'm 18 years old, I'm blonde, 36, 24, 36, and my name is Gamby. If you need me, call on me. And uh, he, he was great to work with, and he was appreciative of the focus, you know. But what you got with the Wicked Picket was an edge in music that many of the other artists of the time did not have. Kind of a dangerous edge, unpredictable, and occasionally bearing weapons. Wilson was what I would call a natural shouter. He had that foot-stomping Baptist church shouting voice that, in his case, he could shout and scream in tune. I'm Tony Fletcher, I'm an author, and I wrote the biography in The Midnight Hour, The Life and Soul of Wilson Pickett. Wilson Pickett was born and raised in Prattville, Alabama. Wilson realized very early on that he'd been given a gift with his voice and that he wanted to take that gift as far as he could take it. This is a guy who had some big R&B hits, first with the Falcons, writing and singing I Found the Love, which to me is a seminal moment when gospel and vocal group R&B helps give birth to soul music. I love the Falcons, but I'm going on my own. So, so Mac Ryan said, that's exactly what you're going to be. It's on your own. Don't forget what we found you. You're going to be on your own. You ain't going to do nothing. I said, well, I got to see that for myself, you know. <laughs> he had then signed to Atlantic Records, who had really kind of misjudged where he sat in the market. They were not the right people to be writing for Wilson Pickett. He really needed to be in with really R&B musicians, and he probably needed to be back down south. I think both Wilson and Jerry Wexler, who was his point person at Atlantic, both were of the same mind for different reasons that what would make sense for Wilson Pickett would be to see if they could get him in at the Stax Studios down in Memphis. Stax was based in a uh, old cinema. It had its studio there on the sloping floor of the cinema. It had a record shop out front in the old candy store. And it was run by a brother and sister, two older white people, Jim Stewart and his sister Estelle Axton. And they had really kind of lucked into and found an affinity with R&B music. And what was really unique is that it was integrated at a time that Memphis was anything but integrated. So that was very, very unusual. And Stax, as a result, starting to develop a sound, a very, very southern soul sound. Its star performer was Otis Redding. These arms are mine. Are and Wilson's reason for wanting to record at Stax was because he heard Otis Redding's These Arms of Mine and said, I want to go where that record was recorded. That's where I belong. Hi there, this is Steve Cropper. 
Steve Cropper was the sort of de facto producer for all the sessions at Stax, but he was also a part of the backing band in the studio that backed Otis Redding, that backed Sam and Dave, that backed Eddie Floyd, Wilson Pickett, Carla Thomas, all the way through. Jerry Wexler had called uh, Jim Stewart, who was the president of Stax, and told Jim, we've got this artist we want to bring down and have you record. I didn't know Wilson Pickett at the time. But I worked in a record shop, so we started looking for things that he might have sung on, and somewhere somebody came up with a gospel record. I remember playing the fade out over and over because he'd go into this chant about, I'm going to wait till the midnight hour, I'm going to see my Jesus in the midnight hour, whoa, in the midnight hour. Wilson didn't just come up with the idea of singing about in the midnight hour. The phrase the midnight hour had been around in gospel music. It was a very, very common phrase. Jim and I pick up Jerry and Wilson at the airport in Memphis go to the hotel, which was that time a Holiday Inn, it's not there anymore, at the corner of Poplar Avenue and Crosstown. And Jerry said, Jim and I are going to go eat something and have a meeting. You guys go ahead and get started writing. When I went down to uh, Memphis, I took um, four or five hit songs down there that I had written. Steve Cropper was a very together guy, like he, he would pitch in, he would jump in there. If something he changed in or something he doing this way or that way, then he was good at doing that. So he come to my hotel, we put everything there together, make it right. And about, I don't know, about two hours later or so, knock on the door, open it, and Jerry says, how's it going? So we played him two songs. And he said, man, I'm getting out of here. You guys are doing well. He said, just keep writing. They went in the next day and recorded these four songs, and one of them, of course, was in the midnight hour. The midnight hour, uh, I guess, is when a, a man and a woman are in a room together and it's time to decide whether there's going to be some kind of a consensual interaction. To me, essentially, it's a moment of loving. I mean, it's really like that dark hour of the night. Wilson, uh, actually, what happens at the midnight hour? <laughs> what actually goes on once the clock strikes 12? All sorts of things. You had to get up and take the dog out. <laughs> I mean, anything could happen. You hear Donald Duck done with the most obvious of bass lines. It's really just an arpeggio on the two chords that run through the verse. Yet something in the way that he plays it has made it one of the most idealized bass lines that you would ever come across. Over the top of Donald Duck Dunn's wonderful arpeggio and with the brass dancing all around it is Al Jackson on drums and Steve Cropper really coming down together on that two and the four. Jerry Wexler was the acting producer because he had brought Wilson down. And he didn't like what I was playing and he said, Steve, can you just play straight backbeats? Steve would have had every right to say, uh, Mr. Wexler, you know, we're the guys making hits here. You haven't delivered a hit for Wilson Pickett. We know what we're doing. Could you kindly leave us alone and we'll get on with what we're doing? But uh, Steve did not say that. He listened to, to Jerry. Some people out there might not know what a backbeat is, and that's usually what the drummer plays. And he usually puts it in R&B on two and four. One, two, accent, three, then four. Very heavy. 
the accent on two and four keeps everybody's little booty moving, and that's what we always did. Which apparently was influenced by a big dance at the time and a number one hit called The Jerk. You have seen it performed right here on Hollywood A Go Go. Let me give you a few simple uh, basic facts. All you have to do is take the bump, bump, bump beat. Let's see what's little. And it was like a pull down, put your hands or fists up in the air and kind of pull down towards your belt line. And, and if you do that on two and four, then that's called a jerk. To emphasize the point, apparently, Jerry came out of the control room. This is a guy who was already well into middle age. And so it's like their dad coming out of the control room and he starts demonstrating the jerk in the studio, looking a little bit like a sort of out of shape middle aged boxer <laughs> in the process. We were in a big studio, very big studio, and uh, we didn't do anything in those days with headphones. They might have been invented, but we didn't use them. I learned to stay right with the drummer by watching his left hand. Back in those days, this was being recorded all in one go, all in one take, live to take. The brass section did not come in afterwards. You know, there's no overdubs to this. This is the recording, the one-take recording. And so you've got to imagine eight musicians plus Wilson Pickett in a room with a sloping studio recording live to two track. Horns are vital to these tracks. They produce this fullness and this breadth and width in the music that was kind of missing in rock and roll. They play in a way that manages to sound at once both sort of laid back and incredibly urgent at the same time. The brass comes in as if it's almost an afterthought, and yet the more that you listen to that brass, the more you realise it suits the song. And obviously, Wilson Pickett's performance is absolutely stellar. That recording helped soul music explode in a way that it hadn't previously. Otis Redding had certainly not crossed over to a white audience like this while remaining 100% credible with your core black audience. It was popular in the South. It was popular in the North. It was popular all across Europe. It was a record that transcended race. It was a record that transcended genre. And it's a record that you could take into a college classroom and say this is a textbook case of songwriting performance and production and as such i think it stands up as one of the great american recordings what struck me about seeing him and hearing him was just the full-on commitment the vibrancy and the edge and the danger in his performance you know and that wonderful voice he had just at the top of his capabilities and uh, he always pushed it and never held back at all it was so big that you would go out and hear a house band at some club somewhere and they would always have that song playing. To this day, you could walk into a bar, probably in most cities in America tonight, and maybe even across the world, and a band somewhere is covering In the Midnight Out. You can't speak much more for a song's longevity than that.
And in fact, the cover you're hearing now is a five-piece English wedding band called Intervision. Charlene Leverton on lead vocals playing at, yes, an actual wedding in the county of Wilshire. Congratulations, Becky and Dan. Our story was produced by Jenny Cataldo and BMP Audio. Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour was recently chosen by the Library of Congress to be part of the National Recording Registry. The clips of him you heard were from a 1995 interview conducted by Dan Aykroyd for the House of Blues Radio Hour. Wilson Pickett died in 2006. Coming up, a defining musical genre of right now via the 1990s. I'm a hip-hop showrunner. It just permeates every decision that we make on the show because we're not just making decisions about plot. The whole thing has to feel a certain way. The creator of Luke Cage on how music shapes his superhero TV show. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. On Luke Cage, the Marvel series on Netflix, the music is practically everything. Cheo Hodari Coker is the show's creator and boss. I'm a blurred, which is a black nerd. Um, I'm also a hip-hop aficionado and critic. And at the same time, I'm the executive producer, creator, and showrunner of Marvel's Luke Cage. Because music is so integral to Luke Cage, we asked Coker to break down exactly how he used music in a few particular scenes in the first episode of the brand new season. Studio 360's Lauren Hansen has the story. The music of Luke Cage is a mix of original score, pre-recorded songs, and live performances. That sound comes from composers Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad, the DJ from Tribe Called Quest. They take their cues from the show's creator, Cheo Hodari Coker, a former music journalist. I'm a hip-hop showrunner. It just permeates every decision that we make on the show because we're not just making decisions about plot. The whole thing has to feel a certain way. It's it's a very 90s New York hip-hop vibe. Luke Cage's story in the Marvel Universe is that he's a man who feels no pain. The backstory on how he got this superpower is that he had been in prison and was subjected to an experiment that made his skin impenetrable to weapons like knives and guns. In season one, he wrestled with the responsibility of this newfound strength, while still grieving the loss of his wife, Reva Connors, who had died violently. But season two is a Luke Cage where he's different. He's different from the standpoint that he's accepted being a hero. He's also now a local celebrity. And he's trying to find that balance between being a local celebrity, but at the same time fighting crime and using his reputation by name to stamp out crime. And so where we open in this first sequence is really kind of the start of that. The scene opens with a black screen. The only sound is Shook Ones by Mob Deep, the 90s rap group from Queens. As soon as you hear this click, don't, don't click, don't, don't, don't click, don't. Uh, immediately, hardcore hip-hop fans are saying, oh man, it's Mob Deep, it's about to get real. And then Luke, played by Mike Coulter, appears. It's night, and Luke is in shadow, facing away from us. He pulls his hoodie up over his head 
camera cuts to his open palm, which holds a small plastic bag that has his name printed on one side. Okay, of course, you notice that it's it's a yellow packet with, with you know his name in black because black and yellow is kind of Luke's signature colors. The camera pulls us into this dingy, dimly lit room, and we see about a dozen women. They're wearing hairnets, protective face masks, and no shirts, just bras. They're standing around a table, and we can see they're making and filling those yellow Luke Cage packets. So we're, we're in a drug lab where a very potent heroin is hitting the streets, and, they, and they're calling it Luke Cage. We see as the song builds that he's coming in, he walks in the room. Es el oso negro. Everyone's kind of freaking out and running out. And Luke, at this point, everybody knows who he is. So he steps out of the shadows. Really, guys? Hey, you gotta know we tried, man. Boom, hits the music again. I can see it inside so you understand that the music you're hearing is from his POV. And so he's basically is kind of fighting to this rhythm, and this is kind of his workout. And so he works his way through these guys, and then, you know, the whole premise of pick up one guy and say, Tell any fool dumb enough to put my name on a package that I'm coming. You hear me? And then sends the guy running off. And then, of course, we see this corner kid. Yo, I got that Luke Cage. That Luke Cage. She's bulletproof. Who's hasn't gotten the memo yet. What's my name? The corner kid runs off. Luke puts his hoodie back on and walks out into the night in slow-mo as the song Shook Ones keeps playing underneath. Of course, Shook Ones is about people that are halfway crooks, people that, people that aren't really authentic trying to be something, and here's the real thing. In one sequence, we're kind of saying to the audience, we're back, but at the same time, we're also trying to say, like, we're establishing, you know, a, a different Luke. We're establishing a Luke that has embraced his power and a, a Luke that has a certain swagger to him. It's not just hip-hop that's important to the Luke Cage soundtrack. There's also blues, R&B, and reggae. Here's another scene, and it features the song Night Nurse by Gregory Isaacs. Gregory Isaacs' Night Nurse. It's a very seductive song. It's sexual, but at the same time, it's also, there's mourning and loss inside. This heart is broken in two. First, we see Misty Knight, played by Simone Missick. She's the fierce NYPD detective, sympathetic to Luke's crime-fighting cause. She herself has paid a price for battling Luke's villains, losing an arm in a previous battle, which forced her to work a desk job. And so here she is alone. Night nurse is playing. She's getting drunk. And she really is kind of embodying the, the kind of poignant, lonesome moment of the song. This heart is broken in two. While Night Nurse is still playing, we also see a scene between Luke Cage and Claire Temple, his girlfriend, played by Rosario Dawson. And there's this kind of, like, erotic moment. You have Luke and Claire dancing in the apartment and eventually making love. Then the other thing that's interesting is kind of meta because there was always talk that Claire Temple's role was potentially, there was a character, the obscure character in Marvel Universe called the Night Nurse, who basically would help or attend to or heal different 
superheroes that were injured. And so, of course, you have a song called Night Nurse, and it's a moment that really kind of features Claire Temple. So there's kind of a double entendre with that. (laughs) It really fully establishes also the fact that Jamaica and Jamaican rhythm is going to be an important part of the soundscape of the second season. The main villains among the many in this series are Mariah Dillard, played by Alfre Woodard, who owns the Harlem Paradise Club, and her lover and henchman, Hernan Alvarez, who goes by Shades. He's played by the actor Theo Rossi. Shades has helped Mariah shift from local politics to organized crime, but she's a mess. She's drinking more and making risky financial moves. The interesting thing about their relationship is that he's supposed to be grooming her for crime, and so to a certain extent, Shades is Lady Macbeth, and Mariah is Macbeth. And then what happens is that things flip because as she becomes more adept at violence and then violence becomes a solution over the series of the show, it's not too much to spoil saying that eventually Shades becomes alienated by that. He needs me. This moment with Nina Simone, this album... It's her debut album. It's the one that has My Baby Just Cares For Me and Mood Indigo. It has this really sensual feel that, to a certain extent, in the subtext, talks about how Mariah Dillard needs Shades and Shades needs her. In this scene, Shades finds Mariah at home in her pristine brownstone, getting drunk in the middle of the day. But this scene is where we fully established their relationship, not just in terms of the emotional connection, but also just, it's just how sultry and sensual their connection is. Because if you look at this moment, I mean, it's almost uncomfortably sensual. That's not your usual. It's my grandmother's favorite. It's her birthday today. Why celebrate someone you hate? That's what family is for. It's the hate that makes it special. You know, do I really want to be, be here? Like, I, maybe I should give them their privacy. Don't you want to give her non a chance? Instead of shades. They were able to generate that kind of heat and chemistry. And that match with this song is just really just a, a beautiful moment, honestly. And in one of, one of my favorite musical moments in the entire series. I trust you, man. Like no one else. Mm. You rock me. The nightclub Harlem's Paradise is itself a character on the show. Episodes often end at the club, and so many key plot points happen there. The performers on stage generally are huge recording artists, and their songs are selected as much for their content as their mood, becoming a part of the plot itself or illuminating or commenting on the conversations characters are having elsewhere. When it comes to the club, Harlem's Paradise is a nightclub in Harlem. And yes, it's a nightclub, but at the same time, it's also a seat of power. Mariah Dillard is the older cousin of of Cornell Cottonmouth Stokes, and together they have inherited the family business, which is Harlem's Paradise. Every single character has a certain kind of musical sensibilities. Whoever is standing on the Cottonmouth perch controls the music in the club, 
and also controls Harlem. So, for example, Mariah's first ascension in, at the end of season one is that Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings are, are performing 100 Days. 100 Days, 100 Nights, to know a man's heart. And that song kind of is when Mariah is crowned. And so that's why they're performing, because that's what Mariah wants to hear in the club. Mariah's musical tastes veer from Nina Simone and, and that kind of jazz to when she does listen to R&B, she listens to neo-soul. She, 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 she would listen to Joy, Erica Badu, Lauryn Hill, those, those modern singers that, that have a certain old soul sensibility. For the second season, the opening performer at Harlem's Paradise is the singer Joy. Standing on stage in a shimmery gown and a feathery headpiece, her band behind her, she sings three songs to a packed audience. I deal in black and white. I now, this first song that we use with Joy is No Gray Matter, which is on her new album. You don't really fully appreciate Joy until you see her perform live. She has this incredible presence, not only as an R&B artist, but also she has a certain rock sensibility. She's, she's, her voice can fit over anything. She's really underappreciated, and so it was really the opportunity to introduce people to her new music, but then at the same time also to pick some of her other songs that um, I felt also fit a certain vibe in the club. What if I so the second song is What If I Kissed You Right Now, the rhythm of which kind of introduces, you know, the very, you know, Luke wearing a suit kind of entering the club and kind of that whole thing. And then really the other song, which is the ballad, I Love You Forever Right Now. Which really, in terms of the lyrics, and it's such a beautiful ballad, but also for to have that song being playing underneath Luke um, and Claire and, and Luke for the first time since Reva died, telling someone that he loves them. Every time I look at Misty's arm or, or what used to be her arm, I think of you and what could have happened. You don't think I do the same thing? That song was really perfect for that moment. That's the risk that we take. No, she takes that risk. I take that risk. That's our job, not yours. You're not invincible. Somebody's going to figure out how to hurt you. They already have. Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad are our composers. They mix their incredible hip-hop pedigree with a knowledge of pairing the perfect music with visuals and scoring. Adrian and Ali actually re-recorded all three songs so that we could give it a, a live sensibility. And so I, I just think there was a collaboration of of joy and what she composed and what she sang combined with Adrian Ali, you know, remaking the songs live for our show that just makes for a very compelling opening number in Harlem's Paradise. You can't lose me. Woman, you are a pain in my ass. You know that? You're no picnic either. That's why this works. (laughs) 
Luke Cage might be the first time a lot of people will hear artists like Mob Deep, Joy, or even Nina Simone, but that's a part of Coger's plan, to expose a wider audience to this range of African-American music and leave them wanting more. It's like Harlem itself. When you're walking down the street, when you're walking down Lenox Avenue, you will hear all different types of music coming out of different cars or coming out of, out of store windows or coming out of apartments. And we have the same approach, the same eclectic approach to music on the show. You're going to hear the entire spectrum of African-American music and have that musical experience because for some people, this is, the, this is really their first deep dive into black music. That's Cheo Hodari Coker, and our story was produced by Studio 360's Lauren Hansen. The second season of Luke Cage is available right now on Netflix. That's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by Whitney Jones. Our producers are Evan Chum, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. I am Kurt Anderson. The preacher from the Foursquare Church told the parents that you're an agent of the devil. Thank you for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. People don't think of Cleveland as sort of a big artistic hub. Cleveland is staging an international art exhibition that is so big and ambitious it might help people forget the city just lost a certain NBA player. Let's create so much critical mass that people can't fly over. I visit Cleveland to talk to the artists and the impresarios. Next time on Studio 360.